Hi, everybody. This is Gemma and Shane. And I always am excited to talk to people that I know. And this person, uh, you all know and love because she was in the Keepers. And this is my friend, Mary Spence. And Mary and I appreciate each other's eccentricity because she is one of the most creative, interesting, adorable people I've ever met in my whole life. And today we're going to welcome her to the program. Hi, Mary. Yay. Glad to be here. How are you? We're good. Okay. Gemma, here's something you should talk about. How we know each other from way, way back. Which, maybe I knew you more so than you knew me. We attended the same school. We both went to St. William of York. You were about two years ahead of me. I was in the same class with Teresa Lancaster for seven years. So I do know her. Although when we got to high school, you know how it is, people drift off with different groups of friends, and we didn't really hang around in high school together. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that Teresa Lancaster was Teresa Harris. Correct. And Joe Harris was my chemistry teacher at Archbishop. Okay. Her older brother. My first day of first grade, I met Teresa Harris because Mm -hmm. when we left school, I was supposed to be in Patrol 2. I wasn't really sure what Patrol 2 was. It was you went out in a group and you all went home together and Patrol 2 crossed Edmondson Avenue and went home a certain way. And I was mixed up and I was standing out on Cook's Lane and along came a really nice lady who said, are you large? And I said, oh, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. Who's this lady? And it turned out to be Teresa Harris's mother, and she explained that Teresa was her daughter. And uh, so I let her take me home. I got in her car. Ooh. And that's how Teresa and I really met and played together sometimes and whatnot when we were younger. You talk about how Sister Kathy motivated you to be a great teacher. Don't forget, your own mother was a great teacher. And in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, I took art lessons from Gemma's mother that she gave on Saturday. She had an art studio in her basement where she taught kids. And I have to say she was the most, she was the kind of teacher that could really motivate a kid to take risks and try new things. And she'd be like, we can fix it if it doesn't work. But I think that's where I got my idea of, we might as well just try. And if it's not right, you can redo it. And that was a good lesson to learn for life. But here's the most important thing. You do not know Gemma, and I'm so glad your mother didn't know. But the first time I ever kissed a boy was in your basement. Mary. (laughs) Don't tell your, you can't tell your mother. I'm glad she maybe is looking down and laughing now, but there was a boy in my class and we were washing up our brushes at the end of the day. It happened. It was a really nice, not a pushy, aggressive kind of kiss. It was a very sweet first kiss to have. So I remember his name. And first of all, Mary, I had no idea you came to the art class. So that was, yes, I'm so excited to hear that. Because I knew that you and I had a connection before we had the Keepers connection. I just right. recognized it in other people, okay? Because my mom really did 
she was way ahead of her time. And she yes. encouraged kids to be original. And right. you are one of the most original people I know. So first of all, you have to go back and tell us how old you were and who the boy was. Okay. I think I was in seventh grade. So I guess 12 or 13. Was that what you would be in seventh grade? Sure. I guess. His first name was Mark, but I'm not going to say the rest. He didn't go to St. William's. He went to public school. I only saw him on Saturdays, but we had become friends and we talked together. And it was a really great way to interact with the other sex in a non-threatening kind of way in the art class. And things just happened. I guess he liked me or something. And did you ever, like, pursue this relationship? As it turned out, I think it was sophomore year of high school. I needed a date for a dance, and he was nice enough to go with me. But, you know, that we never saw each other outside of that. I hope Mark is listening, because <laughs> we all want to know, Mark, who are you? <laughs> anyway, he probably doesn't even remember. Oh, and I also remember coming up at the end of the class, waiting for my mother to pick me up. We'd wait outside if it was nice weather. We'd wait in your living room till 1230 or whatever it was. Your father was always there. He was so nice. And your younger brother, was it Jimmy? Yes. Okay. Sometimes he was in there watching TV. And occasionally a certain teenager named Gemma would come downstairs and I would see her, but I really didn't know you at school because I think you were two years ahead of me. Mary, do you remember that my mom, when you guys used to come in the front door, she would put down like a big plastic runner yes. that would go from the front door to the basement. Yes. And you would all walk on the runner to the classroom right. and walk on the carpet. I had relatives who had that all the time, so it didn't <laughs> seem strange to me. I didn't realize it was just for weekends. Yeah, Along with the vinyl foot covers. I don't think you had them, but I had relatives who had them. Yeah, I don't remember that. Ours okay. use, so. So that's how, you know, my first exposure was Gemma, stop. And here we are again, huh? Yes. So I went to St. William's and then ended up, it's time for high school. I didn't really, I guess because Tia was new, that's where I chose to go. I don't remember any decision making. It was just, that's where everybody wants to go, so I want to go. So I ended up at Keo. My experience was like yours, rather. I learned some stuff. I was at a bunch of clubs. I'll tell you this. I'm too talkative now. I get way off subject and talk about things that have no business talking about because it's off topic. But back then, I was like a mole. I just quietly sat and observed and spied on what was going on in other people's conversations. Which is funny because when I went to recently got a master's in fine art from the University of Baltimore in creative writing, and we were told one stimulus for writing is to sit in a cafe and listen to other people's conversations and then come up with a story that explains whatever it was they were talking about. Use that as your prompt. So that I already knew how to do that because I used to do that in high school. I rarely spoke. I just quietly took it all in. Did I know Sister Kathy personally? No. But I saw her frequently because I had this habit. I didn't like to go from point A to point B when we changed classes, if you know what I'm talking about. 
I would say, I want to see who else is here today. You know, what my friend doing that's in history class right now. I'll go by her class and wave. So I would start on the first floor and walk all around, run around the second floor, run around the third floor, and then just make it to class in time for where I was supposed to be. <laughs> and that's how come I tended to stay away from Maskell's end of the hall. I would only go by there once because he was such a sneak. He, or I don't know what, sneak isn't the right word. Maskell was such a observant individual. If he saw me going by there twice, he would say, get to where you're supposed to be. He knew what I was doing. And there was one other teacher that ever said anything to me was Sister Paulette. And she said, next time we meet, you treat. And I guess that meant I wasn't supposed to go by her more than once either. So I stayed away from certain areas. But the rest of the time, I was like going all over the place. No, I would frequently go by Sister Kathy. She was always nice, smiled, said hi to everybody. And that's the only contact. I never had her as a teacher or anything like that. Like you, Gemma, I didn't know anything that was going on in Keo. I didn't find out till years later, till the 90s, that some of the stuff was going on. And I feel bad about saying, at originally saying, if I'd known, I would have done something. But now that I think about it, Probably not. I probably that I wouldn't have wanted to, but it would have been scary, and I would have known that no one would believe me because a priest would never do anything like that with the attitude that people would have had. Those who were survivors, I just feel so bad that they were stuck in that situation, and really, no one could really do anything in those days. Now, thanks to them that it's all come out, people might believe young girls and boys when they say, you know, what's going on behind the scenes. Mary, many of our listeners will have already seen The Keepers, and they'll probably recognize your name. But we actually, in our discussion group on Facebook, we were asking people, who in the series would you love to talk to? And pretty quickly, your name came up, just because you seem like a very cool aunt. You you seem very funny, (laughs) huggable, and truthful. And just a super cool person. But I wanted to also mention for our listeners who haven't seen The Keepers yet, which I feel like they should, they should definitely go watch it. Can you give to me what your role was in The Keepers and what you heard that day? First of all, for those who haven't seen The Keepers or even those who have, The Keepers was not something like a production where There was a casting call, and we all came forward and auditioned, and we were picked. Some of us didn't really want to do it. Some of us had to really think hard about, did we want the publicity? Prior to The Keepers, I had mentioned on a page that I wish still existed that was run for Keo grads, and it had to do with just us talking about the events. And I had mentioned that I knew what I was doing that night, and I had heard some noise coming from that direction. And I really didn't think it related, but I thought, what if it did? And I kept my mouth shut because we were urged to, if we knew anything at all, even if we thought it was 
dumb, even if we thought it wasn't related, come forward and let somebody else who knows about such matters decide. So I said, here's my chance to come forward and get something off my chest that I've been carrying for years. And before I can extend that was that I heard a commotion up on North End Road, or not really, a, some kind of hollering up on Rockland, North End Road, on that night. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit, and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens. Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown with foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com shane to get 15% off recess mood your go-to alcohol replacement. And nobody has said, how does she know it's exactly that night? But how can she remember this all these years? I think she, they do say, I think she's faking it up because she wants attention. I have to tell you why I was there and why I remember the specifics of it. And it goes along the lines of If you're old enough, you remember where you were when John F. Kennedy was shot. Or you remember where you were when the space shuttle exploded. It was one of those moments in my life. There was one person in the Keepers who remembered because it was the night before her child was born. So she knew the exact day that something happened. So I can tell you how I remember this. And maybe it'll make it more reasonable as to why I would remember after all these years and not have made this up. And this has, I'll start at the point where my history teacher, Mr. Noon, who I did not have a crush on, and I'll explain later why we were hanging around his house. Mr. Noon came in on a Monday morning 
And this would have been the following week after Sister Kathy was disappeared. She disappeared on a Friday, so go fast forward a week, and then three days to Monday morning. And he came into history class and he said, I have to tell you what happened to me over the weekend. I'm too upset to talk about class, history class. I want to talk to you about how our government works and how you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty and how I was crucified by the police over this weekend. It was one of those moments like, what? What happened, Mr. Noon? So he went on to tell us how on the Friday night, the anniversary, one week later from Sister Kathy's disappearance, Mr. Noon was coming home. It was around 10 o'clock at night or so. And he said, oh, I wonder if Sister, he called her Sister Russell, was upset. It's a week later and she hasn't come back. I'll just stop by and see how she's doing. So he pulled, he lived around the corner as from the keepers, if you've seen it. And he pulled in and said, oh, gosh, the lights are out. I'm not going to bother her. Maybe she's sleeping. I'm just going to go home. So he pulls out, and lo and behold, the parking lot had been staked out by a police car. And they pulled him over and said, what were you doing? And he said, I just wanted to see Mr. Russell, but I decided not to. Why did you want to see her? Blah, blah, blah. So they pulled him in and gave him like a few hours of grilling and acting like he did it. He somehow had something to do with Sister Kathy's disappearance. He says they put him in a car. They drove him around Arbutus and all these places he'd never been and said, did you take her up here that night, Joe? And no, I didn't. I didn't have anything to do with it. We were just so appalled that such a thing would happen because none of us believed that our history teacher would have had anything to do with it. Lo and behold, and thinking about that for a few hours later, I said, oh, my God. What if he needs an alibi? I'm going to have to be his alibi because I know where he was that evening. And I'm going to have to come forward and confess that I stood outside his house and watched him in his undershirt. Ah! So I, my whole life, I was like, I'm not going to say anything now. I'm just going to wait till he's arrested. And of course, thankfully, he never was. But that's how I came to know the exact date that where I was because that was the night of Sister Kathy's disappearance and that I had to provide his alibi so I had to remember what he was doing that night. So what was I doing that night? I had a friend who lived down near Upland's apartment. Demi, you know where that is. Correct. Down the street from her lived another male teacher from Keogh. And I used to be down her house, and we'd see him drive by back and forth all the time. He had a blue Chevy, I think, maybe an Impala license plate, G37909, Pennsylvania. And I have a good memory, visual memory. Anyway, he moved in the summer, and we didn't know where he moved to. So we were just wondering, where did he go? So we got on... The beginning of November, back then it was a big deal because new phone books came out. You remember that, Gemma? Correct. They would come around and deliver them to your front door. And we said, let's look him up and see where he's living now. And 
she had an interest in him, I have to say. So we looked up his address, and we got out one of those ADC maps, those great big maps. Oh, yeah. I believe if you live in England, they would call it a ordinance map. Anyway, it's now you just look on Google Maps and zoom in on the neighborhood. But so we found his address and looked it up on that map. And I was like, oh, I know exactly where that is. It's over by Rock Glen Junior High. And yes, it was called Rock Glen Junior High then. It's gone through many renamings. The school system has done away with junior highs. Now they have middle school. I said, let's walk over there. It's not far. It's right between here and my aunt's house. She lived on Malbrook Road, which is one block just within. So I was familiar with the neighborhood. So we just took a little walk. And I have to say, I looked up the temperature because I remember it being cold. It was in the 40s, which if you do centigrade, that would be eight degrees centigrade, maybe. And remember, this was November, which if you live in the Southern Hemisphere, you'd be thinking spring, but this was more like going on to winter. It was dark. It had been dark for three hours. It was, we were just creeping around. There were not people on the street. Normally, we didn't see a soul. And so we go up the block and there's the house. And there was Mr. Noon up in the second floor window, putting on his, combing his hair. And the light went out. A few seconds later, another light went on downstairs. And we were across the street behind a wall, and we were watching what's he going to do. And he came out dressed in a suit and tie. He came down, got in his car, and rode away. And I looked at, we had watches back then, not cell phones. And I said, oh, it's a little after 8. He's going to be late for his date if he was supposed to be there at 8 o'clock. And we were just giggling and everything. And we just stood there. Okay, what do we do now? And that's when we heard a brief, loud shouting from the right. If it were a clock, I'd say one or two o'clock, one o'clock from where we were standing. And that's when we went home. So come to find out, I didn't find out until probably 10 years ago that Sister Kathy was actually taken from her apartment because the news story said... She disappeared on a shopping trip to Edmondson Village. And that's all I read, and that's all I assumed, that somehow her car was found down by Edmondson Village somewhere. So when I found out, it, oh, it was up there on North End Road. Huh, I know where I was that night, and I know what I heard that night. So I'll just throw it out there that maybe could have been related, could have been not. Could it have been someone yelling in an argument? Yes. Could it have been someone shouting to a friend? Yes. Could it have been anger? Yes. Could it have been just somebody like calling out, don't forget to bring home the milk, honey? Whatever. Or the beer, I guess. That's why I threw it out there. Mary, the voice you heard, did it sound like a man's voice? Yes, a male voice. And when I say booming, to me, that doesn't mean deep necessarily. Loud, like projecting loud. And actually, Mary, I'm going to remind, I'll remind you, but you came, you were adamant about letting somebody know this information that you came to a meeting at my home, the first one we had, and some of the survivors came and talked about what happened to them and told me on the way out about Teresa. Correct. I thought it was very important what you had to share 
And you didn't tell us all the information you've shared just now, but it was because out of the goodness of your heart and because you wanted to know the truth that you came forward to me. But I, my question is, you said you and your friend looked at your watches and it was, you said it was shortly after eight when Mr. Noon left, the, left his house? Correct. Now, do you think it's possible that the shouting was him? Mr. Noon? What if he was going over to the... Oh, no. He was in his car. He -hmm. went down the street to Rock Glen Road. He had a left turn. Mm -hmm. This happened seconds. Okay. Between that and... Mm -hmm. It was like he had barely turned the corner and we stood up and went, can you believe it? And then we heard it. The other thing I wanted to mention to you, Mary, before I forget, is that that page that you were talking about still does exist. And for anybody who is an alumni of Archbishop Keogh, it is AKHS survivors. And it's not not just for survivors. It's for anybody who's an alumni of Archbishop Keogh. So you will be, anybody who's listening who fits that category, please request membership. But Abby and the moderators will ask for two other people to vouch for you that you went to Kia for that now. Right. That they grandfathered some of us over under a new name. The other thing I want to say to the listeners is that I'm going to make a confession because I want to support what Mary's saying. When I was a senior, my friends and I, and my mother's in heaven, but she already knows this, we would go to a liquor store it would be like five of us, and whoever looked the oldest would go in. I don't think I was ever brave enough to, with fake cards, we'd get a six-pack and split it between five of us, okay? And then we would go over to Kingston Road, where the male teachers lived. I guess we thought we were something else. And we would do donuts in the street in front of their house, the house that's <laughs> in the keepers. And it was going to bend. So doing right. donuts there was not very easy. And whoever <laughs> was, was nervy enough to not hit a car with their parents, whatever car they were being allowed to drive was the one that would be doing the Buick uh, Saber or something, oh, probably. We would all be yelling, Mr. So, and then we'd call them by their first names. And <laughs> it's like somebody, the light would go on, we'd bolt from there. This is not like stalking. This is like acting like teenagers who uh, maybe had a half a beer and or driving <laughs> mom or dad's car. So there you go, Mary. I know you weren't doing that, but I was. Close. Okay. We used to go to St. Lawrence because we found out Mrs. Baginski went to 10 o'clock mass there. We wanted to see what she wore outside of school. And I'm sure you probably knew where Mrs. Garson lived from St. William. And well, yeah, I knew where Mrs. Cusson lived because she was on our side of the highway. And they were all like lay teachers at St. William's, but they were also like friends of my parents. And we all belonged to the same pool and the same whatever swim club. And so it was just like my mother used to go to ball games with Mrs. Cusson to Oriole games. And also, I've heard from people who have been very supportive that have said, no, I don't think you're a stalker. One girl said, let me tell you what my, I used to do. We used to get dressed up in our Halloween costumes and make my mother drive us all over the city so we could go see different teachers on Halloween. So it's 
I guess you either do it or you don't, and if you don't understand it. but <laughs> Mary, you mentioned this already, but I wanted to bring a little bit more attention to it. We've spoken to a lot of people who have been in the keepers, and it seems like a common theme that some of them have is that some received hurtful comments after the document the documentary was released. When we spoke to Sharon Smith, she mentioned that her and her mom were criticized for speaking out about wrongdoing that they felt that their relative had done, which of course was Billy and her dad. And Gemma has mentioned before that she was also criticized and there were hurtful comments there for her bringing attention to the case within the keepers. Did you suffer from hurtful comments that were made through social media? And if so, what kind of comments you- I think part of the problem is because people do not interact face-to-face, they interact with a screen and word, they don't realize that there's a person on the other side that is going to read those words. Also, people nowadays do not know how to have a discourse of, I think this and here's why. The discourse becomes your realm. And that's what I found. People were saying, as if I were lying, that I hadn't really heard what I heard. She couldn't have. She was too far away. She couldn't have because there were probably kids at the school playing basketball and they were shouting and that's all she heard. That kind of thing. Don't tell me what I think I heard. I'm not, it's not going to help change the situation. I I'm pretty sure I know what I heard. And if you disagree that maybe it wasn't possible to hear anything from a distance or whatever, disagree, but you don't have to put your disagreement out in public. And the other thing is, I never once said, I heard Father Maskell yelling at Sister Kathy. And that's, uh, read carefully, listen carefully. That's not what I said. I heard a thing which may or may not have been connected What I wanted to say was, in your situation, if you hear something, if you see something, if you come forward and let the authorities decide if it fits the overall picture, and they can reject it or not, but you'll feel better about yourself having gotten that off your conscience and you don't have to wonder about it anymore. Mary, I think you're exactly right. Something that I've mentioned many times before is that if you know something, even if you think that it's silly, if it may sound stupid or it's just so little, like that could be a major part to the larger puzzle. I wanted to thank you for coming forward with that story. And I hope that will instill some hope within other people and some to also come forward because ultimately when we have each of those small little puzzles, puzzle pieces fit together that can give us something big and something huge. And we've had that before where someone has come forward with something so small that they didn't think it was important. So thank you for doing that. I wanted to also lead into something that you mentioned slightly in an email to Gemma and I about how your father met Maskell. Can you tell Oh, yes. My father was a physician, a surgeon, and he had been in World War II. And after World War II, he continued in the Army Reserve. And they would have these once a month, these drills where he would go. And once a year, they would have these huge, I don't know, military, Maryland thing to prepare for a disaster. And the National Guard would come and the 100th Station Hospital is, 
unit would be there and other things were around the state to deal with the disaster. Lo and behold, I believe it was probably a Sunday because this would have happened over a weekend on a Saturday or Sunday. And I came in the front door. My father was in the dining room standing and putting, I don't know, his wallet and stuff away where he kept it in there. And I heard him say to my mother, she's home. And I thought, oh, dear, what have I done now? They're going to yell at me. So my mother comes out of the kitchen, wiping her hands on a dish towel. And my father says, I met a friend of yours today. And I said, a friend of mine? Who? And he said, Father Maskell. And I said, he's no friend of mine. He's the priest at our school, but I don't have anything to do with him. And this look of relief came over both their faces. And my father said, good, because I met him this weekend. He thinks he's your friend. And he was, he's a weirdo. Stay away from him. And I wish my father were alive today. I'd say, what gave you the idea he was a weirdo? Well, I know, having been a nurse for 30 plus years, you can pick a weirdo up like that. So it could have just been simply that. Or I was wondering, did he try to convince my father that I had psychological problems and I should let, you know, he should let his daughter come for counseling? And my father probably disagreed with him. And so he was glad that I hadn't already been going to counsel. I'm glad that your parents felt that way because it seems like he was able to trick a lot of parents. And father probably wasn't the most Catholic of all Catholics, so... I doubt he subscribed to the priests or gods. (laughs) I'm also thinking, Will, I think it was Will Hughes. And by the way, Will Hughes wouldn't, again, probably know me from Adam, but I just loved her. She sat, I went on her bus to go home sometime. She was the nicest, most vivacious, funny. I loved her laugh. I'm glad she can still have it after everything that happened to her. But anyway, she said her mother said, She didn't trust Maskell either. There was something creepy about him. And Mary, what you're also, your story is also pointing out is that Maskell was part of that exercise because of his involvement with the, what did you say, with the National Guard? He was in the National Guard, I believe, with a joint exercise. Oh, and I think another thing my father may have, again, I'm just guessing and speculating as we do about everything, but um, it could also have been like, Maskell fascination with military and all that kind of stuff. My father was like not really into the like shooting of guns and blowing people up aspect of it. He was, his unit was like MASH, where people got injured and you sewed them back together. He probably didn't have that much respect for somebody who was gung ho, um, go out there and blow up the commies kind of attitude. Yeah, we understand that Maskell, when he was at the pastor at Our Lady of Victory. The rectory was across the street from the church. And in the front room, he had his military uniforms and his uh-huh. uniforms on display like it was a museum. Uh, I know someone at Keogh who let her come forward if she wants, used to say to me, I, you ought to come talk with Maskell and me. He is really a cool guy. He lets you sit on his lap and wear his military helmet. She seemed to like that and enjoy that. So, not for me. (laughs) 
Okay, so Mary, you've just shared something that nobody else has shared with us. So you may not have thought that you, that it was a little piece, but it's again a very bizarre way for any adult to act with us. Exactly. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Exactly. Mary, you mentioned to us before about odd behavior that Maskell had while you were at the school. Can you tell us about when he was referencing the book, The Godfather? The Godfather came out, I looked it up, I think towards the end of ni- or early 1969. So this would have been the end of my freshman year. Sister Kathy was still there my freshman year, but right. this had nothing to do with her. He used to, Gemma, you'll relate to this. You know how maybe if you saw Father Albert walking around St. William's, he would be carrying his Bible in his arm or some kind of holy book. Maskell would stand out in the hall outside of the chapel at change of class, holding that same way, like up against his heart, the God's father. And a friend of mine was walking by and she had her copy of the Godfather. And she said, oh, I'm reading it too. And he said, have you read page? And I don't know what the page number was. I'll make one up. 250 yet? And she said, no. And he said, read that. So, of course, we ran right down to study hall and opened it up. And it was the scene where Sonny was, for lack of a better word, winking one of the bridesmaids up against the wall upstairs at the family home during his sister's wedding. And we just thought, oh, Maskell is a dirty old man. Oh, look, and he enjoys reading that. But again, did it occur to us that he was anything other than, you know, priests are asexual. He did this as a release because he can't have normal sex relations. He has to read about it in a book. Dirty old man. But it never occurred to us that he was actually acting on some of this stuff for real. And then again, I thought his office looked like the godfather with the dark and the the lamp on the desk and all that. What took you into his office? Because I know just walking by if the door was open. Yeah. I was afraid of too afraid to have anything to do with priests. The viewing audience may not be aware that the chap the uh his office and the school shots were not the actual interior of Archbishop Keo. Women who have talked about what happened to them there or that went there gave really good descriptions to our filmmakers about the kinds of chairs and tables we had, where the desks were, where everything was in his office so that they were able to actually recreate Hollywood style or in Hollywood or their soundstage a replica of his office that's actually very accurate. That's not truly the inside of Keogh because they were not permitted to inside the building. When I first saw the documentary, I thought, how'd they ever get in there? And then I realized, oh, they probably didn't. Who, they, the archdiocese would be foolish to let them. Mm-hmm. But and even if they had, I was like, 
man, if they did get in there, those aren't the kind of lockers we had. Our no, lockers were from floor to ceiling. And our lockers <laughs> stuck out. Do you remember? Yes. Stuck out from the wall. The other thing is that the young woman that plays Jean in those episodes with the long hair was actually an actress in her 30s. Very young from the back. Yeah. People don't think to ask, wait a minute. How could they have gotten these old shots of jeans? They just, you're just tricked in a way. That's Hollywood for you. Good job for them, though. Yeah, they had the same. So, one thing that I thought was a big continuity problem, and I'm shocked they didn't catch, was when the girl at Western went to talk to Sister Kathy, and she was wearing a Catholic school uniform. That's not what you wore in public school. Wait a minute. When the keepers, she's wearing a... I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that... I'm pretty sure... Sh- or saddle shoes. I'll ask... That's Juliana. And I will ask her because they may have had uniforms at Western. It was an all... Oh, school. I don't think so. You know? Maybe, but... Yeah, I'll ask her. I think some people don't understand that that was not Keo. That right. was teaching at a public school in the city. That was not Keo when Juliana spoke to her. Check with her. I'll take a look at it again. And that was, the inside was probably Hollywood Hall. Oh, uh, I know. They did your schools that were in Los Angeles, I believe, that were not in session and were willing to permit them to do filming inside the schools. But they did use Which they're probably used to out there. Yep. Mary, we know that Maskell had a lot of weird habits and weird things that he liked to bring up. You mentioned about the sanitary napkin. <laughs> yes, several people have that I've talked to will remember this. Across from Maskell's office was a girl's room, and there was a sanitary machine, sanitary napkin machine on the wall. And I don't know whether it was really always broken or that was Maskell's thing that he told the cleaning lady, but supposedly he told the cleaning lady that since it was always broken, just give him some sanitary napkins and he'll keep them in his office. And their sign was put up that said, if you need one, go see Father Maskell. So someone I know did, and don't ask me who, I just remember having a conversation with someone. I'll never do that again. He started asking me, well, how frequent are my periods? How many days do they last? Are they heavy or light? And do you ever worry that you might be pregnant? And she thought, oh, I'm going to say no, because if I say yes, he's going to think I'm sexually active and make me come and talk to him. So she picked the right answer and said, no, why would I? And she got off. And I've heard different people when they describe on your podcast that he was heavily into asking questions about menstruation. Yeah, he had a weird fascination with that, bowel movements as well, a bunch of weird stuff. I think we can all probably, we're all probably thinking right now, why would you want to know about when your period is, right? Because I, it's my understanding that he met every week with the nurse the, and the guidance counselor who was, I don't know if it was a nun or a lay teacher, and they went over the names of girls who were either having issues, health issues, academic issues at home. And I'm sure he knew the time of everybody's period right. in the building. Because, well, think about it. Why would he want to know that? I used to carry my own with me to so I didn't I was would have been mortified to even ask the nurse for sanitary pad. Maybe that saved me. 
But it gave him an in to say, like I said, oh, is it ever late? And if it is, are you worried that you're pregnant? Yes, I was. And I wasn't even sexually active. But I thought if I went swimming at the pool at St. Joe, a sperm might get up there. Which I did one time. We had a some kind of pool party over at St. Joe one summer. St. Joe was the boys' pool, by the way. I also wanted to bring up something that you also mentioned in the email. And you're welcome to say whatever you like about this. But about a vague memory that you have? This is what I wanted to ask you. Do you all talk to people who say, I remember this, but I'm not really sure it happened to me? Because that's the way I feel. It was, it's vivid in a way, but could it be that I just have empathy with someone else? Because it would have been such an embarrassing thing to have happened. I don't know. But I can remember, I'll say it was me. Like I said, I only went by Maskell's end of the hall one time, but I, here I was going by on my rounds to go around everywhere else three times, and my shirt tail was out. And Father Maskell said, come over, your shirt tail's out, turn around. And he stood up behind me and really hard pressed his hand down inside my skirt, really slowly tucked my shirt tail in all the way around while he's rubbing, grinding up against me in the back. And again, I thought, oh, it couldn't be anything sexual. He's a pre that I know. And again, it was more embarrassment for me that I was being reprimanded in public that way. I would have rather he said, go tuck it in the restroom. <laughs> I think it's important to know that many of the survivors talk about their own repressed memory. And it seems like there's an event or something that happens where they'll receive a little bit of it, but then over time, they'll receive more and more. So you asked us if we had heard anyone say things like that, where they start to remember something, and it's definitely a huge pattern we've seen. Good. Then maybe it was me, Yeah, and I didn't just see it, because I remember the feeling of it. How would I remember that feeling if I just saw him pull some other girl over and tuck her shirt in? unless he did it to everybody. You mentioned before to us as well about you walking to Hunting Hills Pool. Gemma, you know where that is. Oh, we all walked. I walked, I don't know how far that was. You lived a lot further away. West Hills, but we walked every single day, probably two, at least two miles to get to the So pool. the way I used to, I lived on Chapel Gate Lane. Anyway, I would walk down my street, make a left turn on Woodside, walk along Woodside, and right where Woodside kind of turned into Nottingham was where Teresa Harris lived. And then you would go down a little dip. A family we knew lived on the right, and then you would go around in a little corner, and you'd be at the pool. So several times when I was on that Nottingham stretch between Woodside and the pool, Maskell would drive past, and... We knew everybody's car. I have to tell you, I knew every car in that parking lot because I used to watch people come in the morning and see what kind of car they drove. Although he parked up the other end by his office, but I still knew his car. Sometimes he'd blow the horn, sometimes he'd wave. And the first time I was like, who was that? But then I was like, oh, it's Maskell. And I, a couple of times, I would say, in the course of my years of going back and forth to the pool, I would see him drive past. It didn't occur to me, what's he doing over here? Oh, priests go out on visits 
just see the stick or something, or it's a good way to cut through to Frederick Road from Edmondson. Maybe he was up there for some reason. And I'm thinking, oh, now I'm like, oh, of course he wanted to drive by Teresa's house. Maybe he just dropped her off from one of his trips with her. Who knows? But And that would have been in the summer. Yeah, that was in the summer. Walking well, somewhere after 69. Mary, one of the last things that I had that I wanted to bring up to give some background to this, recently Gemma and I have been exploring a possible connection with Father Maskell in a CIA program called MK Ultra. Yes. Yes. So we know that we have several facts about the program that points that maybe a portion of this program was being tested on unknowing individuals in Baltimore specifically around the same time period that the abuse was occurring uh, to many of our survivors. We've made several links between Masco and MK Ultra, and we're still exploring that, and we're hoping to share our findings and discoveries in a later episode. But there was a little thing that you included that you had mentioned to us about a very weird interaction, we can say. Can you tell me about that, about your interaction at the grocery store? Okay, I didn't even know what Wormwood is, was, or whatever. It's another Netflix documentary, and it was filmed having to do with a man who worked in this program that you described, or a similar one, that where they were testing LSD to control people and to understand how to manipulate people using LSD. And suddenly, the guy supposedly committed suicide by jumping out a window. And the family doesn't quite believe that. They believe that perhaps he was given LSD and manipulated into jumping out the window, or he was purposely killed because he was going to expose something about the program. Who knows? So the young man who was his son at the time and is now probably my age or about was named Eric Olson. And he was played himself in the documentary describing his family's efforts to understand what happened with his father. So I was in a grocery store down the street from me. I don't want to give them full pre-publicity. Anyway, I was standing there looking at some kind of fruit, and I was heard this woman at the table say, weren't you in the Netflix documentary? And I was thinking, oh, here's somebody else who stole the keepers. <laughs> Here comes the long conversation. So I looked up, and she wasn't looking at me. She was looking at the man next to me. And he said, yes, I was. And she said, Wormwood, right? And he said, yes. And she said, oh, that's the only documentary I've ever watched on Netflix. And I said, oh, good, because I don't feel like having a long conversation right now. Because everybody likes to weigh in on their theories and everything. And I enjoy it, too. But I just don't like to take a lot of time someday. So it turned out when I got home, I was like, what's Wormwood? So then I looked it up, and sure enough, the guy was Eric Olson. And they live in Frederick, so I guess it wouldn't be unexpected him for him to be down Ellicott City Way. There are no coincidences. At first, people thought it sounded crazy, but only because it sounds very science fiction-like. But it was a CIA project. And right. It did involve Hopkins, and it did involve Edward Arsenal. It also involved... The doctor, or Dietrich, sure. The doctor Paul McHugh, who testified in the Doe Road case that there is no such thing as recovered memory syndrome, which now we know is not accurate. 
So we have lots of questions, and I think it's like something that needs to be explored. So if anybody's listening that would like to talk to us about the MK Ultra project, if you were involved in it, if you think you were a subject, please get in touch with Shane's podcast page because this is a real thing and it's very similar to the techniques that Maskell used on his victims. Many people call it a conspiracy theory, but I think that it's also important to realize that in the beginning and then in the 90s, when Gene was coming forward with the trial, conspiracy theory is something that often is thrown out there. And I think that was probably being done back then. Oh, how could this happen? That sounds like someone's just making this stuff up. How could a priest be abusing all these people? But All yeah. of this stuff was unbelievable. Exactly. Some people took a lot of convincing to understand what was really going on. And some people took a lot of convincing just except the possibility that maybe it had something to do with Sister Kathy. Because everybody loved Sister Kathy. No one would hurt Sister Kathy. And I think that attitude in the beginning also thwarted a full investigation because the police were like, geez, we're stuck. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.